0: Welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm your host,
1: Joel Marshall. And I'm Kamala Lopez Dawson, and we have the pleasure of sitting here today with Robert Allen Ackerman, who is a very, uh, extremely well known theater director as well as an independent film and television director. And we had the good fortune of meeting him. Um, he's also a friend of Henry Jaglum's, and we met him at his New Year's party, and he very
0: graciously agreed to speak with us today. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you for coming here. We,
0: where are we? We're in a, an editing suite where you're working on your next film. Is that right? right, right.
2: Um, the f- yeah, it's called Tribeca West.
1: <laughs> Is that because it's associated in some way with... De Niro and Rosenthal? I have
2: no idea. I don't know. Um, People ask that all the time, but I really don't know. It's just called Tribeca West.
1: Well, I think it might have to do with the fact that um, the De Niro um, and Jane Rosenthal offices in Tribeca, New York, have a series of suites that um, independent companies can rent out while they're making their movies so Mm. it seems like it's very similar it seems like a um, there are a lot of suites with either editing facilities or uh, space for editing and a lot of different film companies
2: yeah I I don't think it's all independent here I don't think um but uh, yeah there's a lot of editing suites there's all sorts of post production facilities here a lot of directors here now working on finishing their movies.
1: So tell us a little bit about Ramen Girl, which is your new film. It's, um, it was shot, you said, in Japan.
2: Yeah, it was entirely shot in Tokyo. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Tokyo as a theater director. I have a theater, work with a theater company there, and I actually have my own theater company there. Um, so I've been going to Tokyo whenever I'm not doing stuff here. I go there and I do plays in Japanese with Japanese actors Um, and because I have this association with Japan um, a a writer a woman named Becca Topol had this idea for a script about a girl because she had also spent time in Japan and she had this idea about an American girl in Tokyo who learns to become a ramen chef Uh, ramen is here, most people know it as instant ramen, like cup noodle. Yeah. But in Japan, it's really, um, it's the most popular food in Japan. And it's also um, got a very long history, and it comes from China, and it's got all sorts of um, traditions and uh, philosophies attached to it. It's, It's much more complex than a bowl of soup. (laughs) <laughs> it's not a bowl of noodle soup. So um, she and I developed this script together. She wrote it, and um, I developed it with her and wrote it with her. And we um, we never thought it would get made. I really honestly never thought it would get made. I just enjoyed working with Becca. And uh, she's a Buddhist, and so a lot of her Buddhist training, um, the the training of the Raman girl uh, is a kind of metaphor for her Buddhist training. And uh, we submitted the script to, uh, once we finished with it, we gave it to Brittany Murphy, because I had met her and I thought she'd be really good for it. Um, and she loved it and wanted to do it. And then it sort of sat around for a while because we were all doing other things. And uh, Sean Reddick who was at ICM at that time. I was at ICM, Brittany was at ICM, and he's in charge of putting together independent films for ICM, or one of the guys who's in charge of doing that. Uh, Sent it out to about six different companies. And I had never been involved in this process before. I'd always, people just came to me with scripts and said, you know, here's, we're going I never had this development thing you know I never was involved in that before and uh, so he said you know there's loads of companies we'll send it out to six probably be rejected by all six and then you just keep going down the list so I said fine see what happens and uh, all six said yes which was really surprising really really surprising and in March um, they sent it out and by July we were already prepping in Tokyo so it was really fast really really fast it's still like we're still a bit like in a state of shock and now we're editing we're in post but it was shot entirely in Japan in Tokyo which is very difficult it's really difficult to shoot a movie in Tokyo I would not suggest it to anybody um, unless you have a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of really good connections. It's very, very hard it's to make a movie there. Um, it's, it's not a film-friendly city. They don't like you on the streets. They don't want you there. They really. Um, they were wonderful people. We had a great crew. Uh, I insisted that it be an all-Japanese crew. I wanted to work, because I've done all this theater work in Japan, I'm very comfortable working with Japanese um, people and Japanese artists and I know a lot of Japanese actors obviously because I've been working there for so long so um, I wanted to do it as authentically as possible I wanted it to be as real as possible in the sense that you know I didn't want a DP and uh, foreign DP an American or European DP who would walk into a Japanese location and say Wow look at that isn't that beautiful let's let's you know light it so that that sh- uh, something that a japanese person would take for granted um a foreigner might think wow let's make that the focal point of the scene i didn't want to do that i just wanted a japanese take on it all you know I wanted it to feel as Japanese as possible um for better or worse
1: Was the financing J- Japanese as well?
2: The American financiers media eight they did upside of anger and they did the and they did monster and then a uh, Japanese financier came in as well as a partner called Digital Sight um so they partnered on it and uh the the crew was wonderful the designers were great the DP was great the actors were great it was a great working environment but the city is you're constantly fighting the city they just don't want you there so uh, you have to deal with the Yakuza who's sort of the uh, mafia and if they don't want you somewhere in a location they just close you down Uh, it's very hard to get permits um, The people don't cooperate they won't close down streets they won't stop what they're doing if you're shooting somebody wants to walk through the frame they just walk right through it's not a it's not a very um, prestigious or whatever filmmaking is not highly regarded in Tokyo in other parts of Japan it is but not in Tokyo but the story took place in Tokyo and we did it all in Tokyo but it was really hard really difficult.
1: When the um, package, I guess you would call that an independent packaging agent, the person you mentioned, Scott Reddick, is that?
2: Um, Sean Reddick, Sean who's Reddick. now with a company called The Collective, but at that time was at ICM.
1: Okay, so when Sean sent out the package, that included you, Brittany, the script, did it also include a budget or any other elements?
2: Yeah, it included a budget, which turned out to be completely unrealistic because none of us really knew what it cost to make a movie in Japan. Um, so the budget that we originally, um, I thought, we could do the movie for turned out to be about half of what we could do the movie for. So $3 million is what I thought we could do it for, and it turned out to be six. But, um, yeah, he sent it out, and um, and Brittany was attached to it, and I was attached to it, and by the time we actually sent it out, we already had... The, the main relationship in the movie is between Brittany and this ramen chef, and the ramen chef we already had cast with a, an actor named Toshiyuki Nishida, who is like the Marlon Brando of Japan. I mean, he's a major, major star, big, big, big movie star. So in terms of its foreign distribution, Japanese distribution, he was a very attractive element in all of it. How
0: did you handle language on the set? I I assume you speak Japanese.
2: I don't don't speak Japanese. It's a really difficult language. Yeah. Um, I speak I can say other two languages. Which, in which? What can you say? I can
0: say "onaka ipai,"
2: which I think I means it "I'm means you're full." Means And yeah. I can
0: say Imananji dasuka. Which, I mean, which, means, <laughs> which means "What time, what is, it? time is it now?" <laughs> it, get, it gets me far. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs>
2: Those are strange things to be able to say. I Most know, people know, could say arigato gozaimasu or ohio gozaimasu, good morning. think
1: because Jill's um, first major girlfriend
0: was Japanese. Oh. Yeah. For some reason she taught me those two those things. Those
2: two things, I see. She's
0: a good cook, I guess.
2: I'd be <laughs> like, I'm, I'm full, I'm
0: full. <laughs> 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 what time is it? I gotta go.
2: i <laughs> full, well, I gotta go. No,
1: but how did you come to Japan? Did you just have an affinity for the culture that drew uh, you there?
2: Well, I've I directed a lot of theater, as you know. But how
1: how did you come to decide to direct it in Japan?
2: Direct theater in Japan? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was a a very um, successful theater director. And I did a lot of shows in New York and in London and all over the world. And it was during the 80s when there was this thing called the bubble, which was uh, Japan had a lot of money that actually turned out to disappear. Their economy then went into the toilet. um, But during the 80s, they had a lot of money. They call it the bubble because it wasn't real. And during that time, they were bringing over a lot of foreign directors to direct theater there. Uh, Everybody was uh, into designer clothes, anything Western. You know, they, they were very impressed with anything western and spending a lot of money to import anything western into the country including western theater directors and at that time I lived in London and they were bringing over a lot of English directors and I sort of got lumped into that category because I lived there and did a lot of work in the west end and the English uh, west end the, the commercial theater there and so uh, and they were paying a lot of money because they had a lot of money And everybody wanted to go and work there because there was a lot of money to be had there. But also because they have a very um, active theater community and it's very alive and they're very receptive. And you could go over there and really get tremendous support for any project that you were involved in. And um, so I was asked to come over there and... I got involved. There's a company called Shochiku, which you may know. I don't know if you know, but um, they, in terms of film history, they did all of Ozu's movies. They're a huge uh, movie company. As well as everything in Japan is some sort of conglomerate of something. They don't. They nobody just does one thing. They have a theater division, a movie division. Uh, they might own taxicabs. Apartment buildings, hotels—you know everything is sort of multi-faceted, um, fa- whatever. And uh, anyway, I was brought over by Shochiku to direct a couple of plays, and I was working in this space that I loved. This is a very long answer to your question, no, but good. it's uh, was called the Ben—it's called the Benison Pit, and it's a converted dye factory, and it's just about the best theater space I've ever seen in my life. And I loved working in that space. And I was with a group of producers that were a part of Shochiku's theater division. And eventually they left Shochiku and they started to produce their own plays under the, the um, name Theater Project Tokyo. But they used Benison Pit, and I loved working in that space. And so I would keep going back year after year even after they didn't have any money anymore. But I just developed a strong commitment to that company, that space. Um, And also, you asked me if I know Japanese, and I think there are... I always say it's a really difficult language to learn, which it is. It's very, very difficult. And one of the most difficult things about it is that, unlike a romance language or European language, when you're in Italy or you're in France and you, you hear a word you might see that word on a poster and it, you just get the, the visual reinforcement and you keep hearing that word and you see that word and, and it looks like a word that is resembles English and you can read it but you don't get that in Japan at all. There's no reinforcement beyond what you're hearing and, and what you're hearing is so foreign that it's very hard to even know what you're hearing. And so you might learn a word and then 10 minutes later forget it because you just can't, you just don't get that constant reinforcement. But also I think that there may be a part of me that didn't want to learn the language because I liked, you know, I did so much theater in the West and working in film. There is something really, I think, liberating about working in a place where you actually don't have to know what they're saying. Um, You learn the script by osmosis in a couple of days. You actually have memorized the script because you're looking at it so much while the actors are reading it. So it really gets imprinted in your brain. And so you know what they're talking about. Um, But you don't, you're not tied to language, which I think frees your imagination. And I think, Probably either I'm really stupid (laughs) and couldn't learn it or I like to think I didn't want to learn it. Some part of me really just didn't want to learn it. So in answer to your question about language on the set, um, we had a lot of interpreters. And, you know, I can speak a little and I can understand a little. And you speak in the language of film. You know, I could always speak to the DP even though he didn't speak English and I don't speak Japanese. We look a little alike, so that was a kind of funny thing. Yeah. Everybody kept I kept saying we were brothers separated at birth, but people would keep coming up to me. If they'd see us from the back, they'd tap me on the shoulder thinking I was him, or the other way around. But really, we understood each other. We just understood, as I said, there's a kind of film language you just you know what you're talking about, you know, without having to use words.
1: You mentioned when when uh, we first walked into the room, we noticed there's a, a workflow diagram that talks about um, HD and Vericam, and I think, I believe, what it's indicating is that it was shot onto, uh, recorded directly onto a hard disk. And you mentioned that your DP was one of the sort of cutting-edge people in HD. How did you find him, and um, what did he, wh- how tell us a little bit about that
2: well he's a very very famous dp in japan his name is zensho sakamoto actually zensho is sort of a a um, nickname i don't I, I honestly don't even know his real name it's i think the name that appears in his credits is not zensho but i've only ever known him as zensho but i don't think it's his it's actually the name that appears in in his, uh, you know, on the screen when he's credited with doing a movie. But he's really famous in Japan. And so he was immediately recommended among the two or three best DPs. And I met him and I really hit it off with him. I really liked him a lot. And I've seen a number of his movies and I know his work. Uh, I, th- They haven't been shown that much in America. But if uh, people who are listening to this and have any kind of um, association with Japanese cinema the most famous one and it's sort of a cult film is called Kamikaze Taxi and it's with Koji Yakusho, who um, was in Shall We Dance and uh, Kazuya Takahashi who was a big rock star in Japan at one time and he's actually in The Ramen Girl he's got a small part because he and I have worked together a lot um, but they're the two stars of that movie. And uh, it's, a, it's very famous um, in Japan, and it's been shown in a lot of film festivals. And I, I know a lot of film buffs who really love that movie. And he shot it, among lots of other movies. Uh, and so we met. And what I found out about him was that he is like a pioneer in HD. He developed all of the lenses for Panavision, for Panasonic. Now I don't remember. Now it's like, it's either Panasonic or Panavision. Which
1: is it, Justin? He doesn't
0: know.
1: With the prime it lenses?
0: N- it could be either.
2: But he's the <laughs> one who...
1: No, there's a prime lens package that comes with your Panavision. HD camera. I think no, Well,
2: Sony has one, Panavision has one. It's Panasonic. I'm okay. almost positive it's Panasonic, and it's the most movie-like. It's the one that is the the lenses and everything. Um, re- the The finished result is the most like film. The resolution, everything, is the most film-like. We had no intention of shooting this movie in HD, but because he wanted to, and because of his knowledge of it and uh, what he thought he could achieve, um, he was really the one who pushed for it. And he convinced us. He did a movie that was very, very popular in Japan last year called Yamato, which was entirely filmed in HD. And he showed us that film and it was really very, very impressive. And so we decided to go with it, you know.
1: Did you have conversations with Media 8 prior to making that decision? Oh yeah,
2: yeah, Media 8 was ultimately the the deciding they they made the decision. Yeah, they decided that they want they'd always wanted to do it, to do something using HD and they felt well this is the perfect opportunity. You were working with the person who knows more about it than anybody else probably in the world. Um, and is sort of regarded as like the grandfather of uh, of HD. Um, so, yeah, it was a decision that was made collectively.
0: That's something that uh, ever since... We interviewed uh, Scott Billups a few weeks ago about, and we were talking about HD and about um, indie studios and studios, uh, whether or not they want people to shoot in HD or whether they want to stick to film. And he was saying that some um, studios put a moratorium basically on HD because they they couldn't handle it or they felt that some people couldn't uh, wouldn't come up to a certain quality standard that they wanted with HD. So we got some emails from different listeners asking us, you know, to clarify that.
1: Because a lot of our listeners, obviously, I mean, HD is the most cost-effective right. way that a new filmmaker can make mm-hmm. a movie. So I actually put some calls out, and um, New Line did say that they were um, on hold in terms of acquiring or producing films on HD because of they felt that the latitude was... Uh, I, Basically, they were concerned. They had concerns about it when it went to 35. But then I talked to my friend who's um, the head of post-production at Sony, Columbia TriStar, and he said the opposite. So it's interesting that there's such like wildly divisive... Um, Feelings about HD. I mean, he in fact said that click. They shot Click on HD. They have plans to shoot four other big Sony movies on HD. I mean, granted, they created a lot of the cameras and so forth, so they really are up on the technology. Exactly,
2: because it's Sony. That's why. Um, there's a. I had reservations about doing it on HD as well, um, but. What, how it was explained to me, and I don't know if this is still um, still operational, but he said, uh, Zencho, the DP, said, if you're going to do it in any other... F- he would never do it if it was Sony equipment or Panavision equipment, because he said he didn't feel that you could get a good enough film resolution. He felt that only Panasonic had the lenses and the equipment to do it. And the other thing that he said, and was really adamant about, was that they couldn't do the post uh, any of, and I'm not technically, um, you know, uh, I'm not technically knowledgeable enough to really discuss this in any depth at all. But he said, you cannot do the color correcting in America. They do not know how to color correct HD properly in America. And the color goes all over the place. And in fact, if you see Superman, which was shot in HD, or lots of it was shot in HD, you'll notice that there are scenes where Kevin Spacey is wearing maybe a blue tie, and he walks into the other room, and it's red. Um, It changes color. Um, And it's very hard to apparently uh, get the color uh, to be stable. he said the only way that he would shoot it in HD is if we agreed to have all the color correction done in Japan, where they have the more modern facilities, they know how to do it. And he said um, that was the only way that we could even consider shooting it in HD. So that's what we're doing. Wow. It looks beautiful so far, what we've seen of it. Um, you know, what we have here are just uh, is the Avid You know, um, output, but...
1: It does look, just the frame that I'm looking at looks really extraordinary. Well,
2: that's a strange frame because it's the middle of a dissolve. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) So it's a little bit strange. Um, But, uh, yeah, it does look, the color is beautiful. And it's, I I think, quite honestly, it's maybe more difficult to light for HD. I'm not sure. Again, I'm not technically... um, proficient enough to say that with any real confidence, but it's what I've observed.
1: Have you observed that the lighting takes longer or shorter?
2: Uh, they say it's going to take, he kept saying it'll take shorter, but I think it took longer. Um, he told us it would take a shorter amount of time, but I think ultimately it took longer. I think also um, he was never, he wasn't used to shooting in an American style. And so he really had a bone up on that, and it was difficult for everybody involved. And, and there were so m- many more lighting setups than I think he ever thought there would be. Because in, a, in Japan, they don't do coverage. <coughs> they That's shoot awesome. a master.
0: Yeah.
2: No, they don't do any coverage. They'll decide beforehand that if it's a conversation between two people, the person who's going to have the lead, who's the lead of the film or the person who has the most lines in the scene is going to get covered but that's it so there might be a master and a close up and that's all you won't have another angle you won't have two close ups you won't have overs you won't have you know different sizes you just that's it
0: and is that the style that you
2: shot in no awesome. no we shot american style and the other thing is that they don't um they don't go from the beginning of the scene to the end because they try to conserve the amount of film that they use. So if it's a conversation between two people, you shoot the one person, then you shoot the other person, then you shoot go back. So you go back and forth. So you're not. the, the lighting can't be adjusted. So you, you say cut in the middle of a scene, even in a master. Cut, and they move the camera, and then you pick it up from that spot. And then cut... And maybe you'll go back just a few lines. You don't do the whole scene over and over and over again from all different angles, from all different you know, people's points of view, whatever.
1: This really affects the actors.
2: It affects the actors terrifically, yeah. They're not used to... Um, the, the Japanese actors in our movie were shocked that they had to do scenes again and again and again. <laughs> and uh, they liked it. They liked yeah, it a course. lot because they got to do... Th- ex- you know experiment a little bit and they got to do the scenes from the beginning to the end but um i think they were also perplexed by it because it took so much more time than they were used to you know they shoot japanese movies very quickly and everybody always talks about the japanese and how they're willing to work from you know morning till middle of the night if they have to go 35 hours they go 35 hours But in those 35 hours, they get half the movie done, (laughs) or not really, but they get a a lot more done than we would get done in 35 hours. So I think they were confused that we would work that long, and yet only maybe only... We would only accomplish um, one or two scenes, you know, whereas in the same amount of time, they would have done six, you know.
1: So how many shooting days did... You have on this film forty-two, and what's the average shooting schedule for a Japanese feature?
2: It's shorter. It's shorter, um, and uh, it's. I think it's generally shorter. It's usually. It could be as much as three weeks, like a television movie. Yeah.
0: What is the, now? You've had a lot of experience with some with American actors and Japanese actors. Are there different acting styles in the way they approach a part? In general, I mean, this is kind of a general question, but yeah,
2: I, um, I've had experience with actors from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not that much of a difference, there is a difference, but it's uh, my what I have found is that um, there's a difference unless you demand that there isn't a difference. Um, in other words, um, if you just sort of sit back if you were to just sort of sit back and let a- the actors act in their own style, whatever you want to however you want to say what the way that they're um, accustomed to working it's very different. but if you sort of demand that they work the way you work as a director, then it's amazing how quickly actors will conform if as long as they understand what you're trying to get at. You know, it's very important that you make it clear. Um, It's very important that you don't interfere with their process so that they can't work. What you have to do is just be very confident about what you have to say and clear about what you have to say. And then generally, I have found wherever, whatever country I'm working in, actors respond exactly the same. They're very glad to get direction. They're very glad to get a clear idea of what it is that the director's looking for or what the scene is about. Um, I don't usually like to talk about what I'm looking for. I just try to find out whatever's truthful about the script. This is what the scene is about, not necessarily what I want. It's what I think the scene requires. So if you're talking in that language, this that the character at this moment feels this or he's been through that or she's she wants this or she wants that and the scene is about this or that, and you make it clear, then I think most of the time the acting styles don't conflict with, that, with what you're trying to get to. But if you leave the actors alone, you will find that their style, their approach is different. Um... Japanese actors have a tendency to be a bit more presentational than American actors would, and English actors tend to be a little bit more um, sort of somewhere in between, a little, you know, between presentational and um, the kind of more realistic acting that American actors go for.
0: I you know, when I was in college, I studied um, this, this guy named Tadashi Suzuki, who was a yeah. Japanese director. And he had a a training style that was very presentational and also, and we worked with this a lot. And it was very powerful as far as uh, the effect that it would have on actors uh, on the stage. And it was also very rigorous physically. Um, And we were also going for something that was a little bit more, left a little bit more margin for the audience to interpret your emotions and things that were going it was much more neutral Um, do you find that in the theater in Japan that kind of that kind of style
2: I know who you mean when you talk about Suzuki and the Suzuki method or the the Suzuki style but um, the uh, the tendency the Japanese audience um... I have never made a film there, but I know from doing theater there, and I've only done Western theater there. I do it with Japanese actors in Japanese, but it's, it's always Western plays. Um, so the behavior I'm looking for is more Western. I'm not, I would never presume, even though I've been going there for years, I would never presume to direct Japanese actors in a Japanese play and say, well, Japanese people would do that. I don't know what Japanese people would do, even though I've been there for 20 years. I don't know. I mean, I, I, don't, I think that would be presumptuous on my part. But, yeah, the, the, the um, sort of the, the, the most interesting, well, how can I put this? The thing that interests Japanese audiences a lot, especially when they're watching Japanese theater, um, is ambiguity, They don't like to get answers. It's very common in the language. It's very common in the culture. Ambiguity is a highly valued um, aspect of Japanese culture. Uh, Clarity in communication is very difficult in Japanese. Um, The language doesn't even allow it. (coughs) So it's, yeah, in answer to your question, confusion is often... Very highly regarded. They re- it's better not to know exactly what you're feeling or exactly what you're thinking. <coughs> it's actually considered a bit naive. Mm. You know, it, ambiguity and sort of uh, confusion <coughs> is more respected. Excuse me, I just want to get some water. Do you want
0: any? Do you want no, I think
1: I'm good. I'm fine, thank you. Um, I'd like to talk to him when he returns about this theater.
2: So it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that about the Suzuki uh, method. That I found a
0: lot of that training for me and for uh, other actors that I worked with and saw after that, um, that if they did that training, maybe in a university setting, and then they went on to be just a westernized actor and be an actor, a lot of times um, they had a little bit more of a grounding that would um, do something for their acting. I don't know how to describe it. For instance, I I went and saw a play of um, Coriolanus in Chicago when I was there, and uh, I I had a friend who was the um, assistant director, and she said to me, you know, she said there's one guy in there who who did that Suzuki training, and i, I they were all on the stage and um, I was like it's that guy over there isn't it yeah. and he, she's like, yeah it is and it was he just had a kind of a presence he was just you know he was like a soldier in the play I mean, it wasn't even a, i don 't even know if it was a named part, uh-huh. but it was something about him he just had this presence about him mm.
1: i'd like to talk to you a little bit about your theater work because it's just so um, you know we're both actors and we both come from the theater and the work that you've done, some of the plays that you've done have been seminal plays and you've worked with some of the greatest theater actors that we know of. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you started in the theater and what your, what, um, your history is?
2: Sure, um, I grew up in New York, I'm from New York, so I was always interested in theater. Um, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that if you come from New York you're interested in theater but I was I was grew up loving the theater and saw a lot of theater as a kid and uh, my grandparents owned a hotel in New Jersey and every summer I'd go there and do a show you know sort of the Judy Garland Mickey Rooney thing of let's do a show but I w- I never studied theater I, I was always sort of afraid of it And uh, so in college, I never really did. I directed a play in college and had a very, very positive response. In fact, the head of the drama department told me, she said, you know, I never advise anybody to go into this profession because it's so difficult. But I'm breaking that rule and I really think you should be a director. And of course, I ran the other way. I was terrified of it. It really was a scary thing to me. And then... I was a teacher for a long time in the New York City school system, and finally I decided I would like to try and do something in the theater. And I went to an audition, because all I really knew about was acting. I didn't know very much about what, how a play was really made. And uh, I became a member of this off-off-Broadway theater company, and we then broke away from the artistic director of that company and formed the the actors in the company, formed their own, uh, we formed our own company, and we needed directors. We just, it was just, you know, here we were a group of actors and uh, no directors. So I said, well, I'll do that. I, I did it at my grandparents' hotel, I'll try. So I directed a play and it got very, very good reviews and it had a very, very positive response. And I never thought I was really a very good a- actor at all. <laughs> so I just thought, okay, I think this is more what I would like to be doing. And I directed a couple of plays with this company, and, and they continued to get really notice, good notices in New York. And, um, and then I was, I was asked to go to the O'Neill Playwrights Conference? Do you know what that yes. is? Yes. It's
0: a great thing. Now that <coughs> takes place at the home of Eugene O'Neill. Is no, that right? It takes
2: place near the home of Eugene O'Neill's family, their summer home, hmm. uh, and w- that's where Long Day's Journey Into Tonight takes place. Right. But and this is nearby. It's not far. It's in New London. Um,
1: I think that the um, the head of my theater department, Nikos Sakaropoulos, used to run that
2: thing. No, Nikos, who I knew quite well. Ran Williamstown. Oh, Williamstown, different it's than in the Berkshires. it's in the Berkshires, and was a really I worked at Williamstown as well. Another great place. Great to work. place. Uh, yeah, great place to work. It was like um well, anyway, I I did this play at the O'Neill, and it was the first I had never even been to the O'Neill before. I mean, it's a pretty cool story. Um, it's an interesting thing. And I hadn't directed very much at all. I had been to the Berkshires to this, that same summer, to this theater called the Berkshire Theater Festival. Mm-hmm. And I did this um, play called Broadway with Gilda Radner and a bunch of other great people. Um, and that same summer I went to the O'Neill. And it, it's, if you know anything about the O'Neill, it's only readings, you don't do a production. You do a staged reading of a play. And you have four, four days to rehearse it, and then you put it up. And, you know, the whole idea of the O'Neill, the whole philosophy of the O'Neill was um, that you, um, you were able to do these plays without anybody over your shoulder. Nobody, you know, this was freedom for the writer. It was all about the playwright and the director. Everybody was there in service to the writer. And great actors were there. You know, all of the great New York actors would come because it was so much fun to be there. And uh, anyway, the first play I ever did there was something called A Prayer for My Daughter by Thomas Babe. Do you know who Thomas Babe He's a wonderful writer. And that summer, Wendy Wasserstein was there and Ted Talley... Um, You know, they had all just gotten out of school. We were all really young. Um, I was not so young because I had been teaching for such a long time. But anyway, um, we did this play. I did this play called A Prayer for My Daughter. And uh, unbeknownst to me, it was done on a Saturday night. And everybody, it was the third Saturday of every season at the O'Neill, everybody from the theater world is there. I mean, all of the, all of the New York theater people are there. Um, all of the um, regional theater artistic directors were there. So everybody who I had been trying to ever send a resume to or any, was there that night. And uh, it was really scary. I mean, I didn't know that was gonna happen. And I had been a reader at the public theater, Joe Papp. And Joe Papp was even there. And I was just, like, terrified. But anyway, it went really well. And uh, the next day, I was just offered every theater company in America. And Joe Papp said to me, I want you to do this play in my theater. And uh, I was... Totally shocked, and this we was did at the, the
0: public theater.
2: Well, this was at the O'Neill, oh,
0: yeah. no, but Joe Papp was, was, was
2: there. And Joe said to me, You know, I want you to do this play in my the theater, wow. so we did the play at the public, and I won the OB. And, oh my
0: god, and <laughs> it was like, crazy. and I
2: didn't even know. I swear to you, we would sit around for a production meeting and they'd say, well, the stage manager. And I'd think, what the hell is the stage <laughs> manager? I don't even know what the stage... I had wow. been a teacher six months before. I didn't even know what they were talking about. Then, So the first play was this Prayer for My Daughter, which was a huge hit and ran for a long time. And I won the OB and... Um, it was... Uh, Alan Rosenberg was in it. It was the... F- Do you know Alan? He's mm-hmm. the head of SAG. He's the president now no. of SAG. But he, w- was, he was a kid. It was like his first part. And um, then they... Oh. Joe asked me to... The next play that I did was something called Fathers and Sons with Richard Chamberlain and Dixie Carter, which we then did out here in L.A. and it was a huge hit out here. And then the third play... I did what was called Taken in Marriage with Meryl Streep oh and God. Colleen Dewhurst <laughs> and <laughs> Kathleen Quinlan, and uh, I, it was really terrifying, just terrifying. But I still, whenever I see <laughs> Meryl, right I say to her, I hope you don't hate me for that, because <laughs> I just didn't know what I was doing. But it, yeah, it was really amazing. And then um, the second summer at the O'Neill, I met Martin Sherman, who had written this play called Bent, and he asked me if I would do it in New York and I did it in New York and Richard Gere was in it and it was a huge, you know, it became this very important sort of milestone in the uh, Broadway theater because it was the first play of its kind ever on Broadway. So yeah, it's, it was a really good time for me in the theater and I did a lot of great theater stuff.
1: And how did you make the transition into... I think you transitioned first into television.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was... um, I had worked with all of these really famous actors by that point. You know, all movie stars who would always say to me, why aren't you doing movies? Why don't you do movies... And I wanted to, but it, I was always working in the theater and I was going to Japan and I was going to Paris and I was working in London and I was working with all these phenomenal people. And I just, uh, I, I don't know, it sort of eluded me. I never, was real, I never really pursued it. Um, and then I was out here. I had done these plays and I had like, two plays running in London and I was on my way to Tokyo to do a play in Tokyo. And I came here for just two weeks. And I was having lunch. And a, an old friend of mine, who I hadn't seen in about 10 years, was producing, um, came over to the table, and she said she's a, was a producer, is a producer, Marsha Nassiter. Do you know who she is? She's a very famous um, woman who's been in the movie business forever. She's in her 80s now, and she's still doing it. She just produced a movie called Death Defying Acts with Catherine Zeta-Jones and Guy Pearce about Houdini. And uh, anyway, she was having lunch at a table, and she came over and she said, oh, my God, I haven't seen you in so long. I have something. You would be perfect, perfect. And I said, well, I'm leaving for Tokyo in two days. She said, read it. Read it right away. If you like it, you're perfect for it. So she sent me the script, and I, I read it, and I loved it. But it was a very difficult thing to do because it was it's called Mrs. Cage, and it's just one woman sitting in a chair while a cop is interrogating her. She's she killed somebody, and she's just being interrogated in this... Um, police station and the play is written for her to just be sitting in one chair and this guy is asking her questions and they talk for about an hour and <coughs> I, but I loved, I loved the play I thought it was a terrific play maybe if I was more sophisticated film wise I would have thought what how do you make this into a movie but being sort of dumb about it I thought oh, I could make a movie out of this and she said to me well Anne Bancroft is playing is, has agreed to play the, the lead do you know her I said I'm very very close friends with her in fact and this is true I'm having dinner with her tonight I was going to have dinner with Melanie and Ann that night and we had worked together she and I had worked together in the theater and we're really close friends and I went over to her house and she mentioned it to me she said you know I got this script and I'm thinking of doing it I said well I read it she said do you want to do it I said, "Yeah, I'd like to do it." She said, "Then I'm going to tell them I won't do it unless you do it." So that's how that happened. I got to do this little movie called *Mrs. Cage*. And how and did you
1: shoot it? Did you shoot it like a play, or did you no, broaden it out? No, of that
2: no. Part? We opened it. I opened it up. I worked on the screenplay with the writer, and we opened it up. And basically, it still took place in real time in an hour of interrogation. But there were flashbacks within it, and. It's really interestingly done, because you see the other characters, and she's always saying what they said, so it's her voice coming out of their mouths. It was really an interesting little movie. Bill Pope shot it. Bill shoots all of the Spider-Man movies and the Matrix movies, and is an an old friend of mine from New York, so he was the first person I thought of to ask, because he was the only DP that I knew at the time. And when it was finished, he said to me, you've now made the most difficult movie you'll ever have to make. Because mm. uh, it was just one continuous uh, conversation for an hour.
1: They wouldn't even make that movie today. Well, it was
2: made for television. It was made for a, th- a program called American Playhouse. Oh. So they might have. If, yeah. if, probably wouldn't be American Playhouse anymore. There isn't. Yeah, yeah so you're right they wouldn't make that movie today
0: now Robert you're obviously very good at working with actors And is there any kind of advice just a little bit of advice that you can give directors out there that maybe are not as experienced with actors as you are um, on how to work with actors and how to get the best performances out of them as you can
2: yeah I would say hire good ones and leave them alone (laughs) that's the best advice I can give you um find good actors uh, I think that one of the biggest problems that I have seen directors uh, well, what actors have told me is the biggest problem they have with directors is that um directors are very often afraid of actors they don't like to talk to them they're they're just afraid of them um and or so that that fear exhibits itself or manifests itself in a variety of ways. One is that they stay completely distant and sort of make you feel, make the actor feel as if um, they're sort of on some sort of higher plane than the actor and you can't come near me, they're unapproachable. The other way that it's been described to me is they become very dictatorial. And they just, you know, insist on things that sometimes are completely off the wall just to ath- exert their power. Um, or else they like to talk a lot. And what I have found works best for me is to talk as little as possible, because I have found that talking a lot, it, it, it can be very confusing. Um, you just can talk and talk and talk till neither one of you the actor or you really know what the (laughs) hell is going on anymore you just sort of talk and and you can also mislead people because what you say something that means something to you and the actor interprets it very differently so my feeling is to be as honest and say you know what do you think and ask questions of the actor what do you think this is about what do you or whatever, I don't like to talk a lot. I like to just say as little as possible. And the same in the theater, the same in movies. Get the actors together in a rehearsal situation, even if it's only five minutes before you're going to shoot the scene. Talk to them about what you think they should be doing, what the activity or, or the, the um, action or the... Um, You know what? What the um, uh, the word has just completely gone out of my head. No, the uh, the behavior. Yeah, the behavior is of the scene. You know um, what you're doing in the scene, and invariably, if what you're doing is the right action, then you understand the scene. You don't need to be told that much more. It most of the time the actor knows more about the character than anybody else. They are the ones who are living with that character. And what they really need is, how, is somebody's idea, if it's a good one, of how to channel their energy or what their emotional energy, their, what the scene is about, into some sort of physical reality that they can play. And if the physical reality is correct, then the rest is unlocked. That's been always my experience. You can unlock an actor's emotional life or whatever or make them feel really comfortable just by giving them the right behavior. Um, And it explains the relationships. You're, You're doing this, you're doing that. When he says that to you, that makes you do that and that. And... Eventually, you understand the dynamic of the scene through a kind of physical... I I believe in the physical activity of uh, the physical um, action of a scene much more than sitting around and talking about the psychological blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, what is? you can't act that. What What does that mean? What do you do with that information? It just sits in your brain. And you go, okay, what do I do with that?
1: I know that um when I trained with Sandy Meisner the thing that he always would say is there were two things one is what just happened where are you where are you where, uh, in 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 se- in the sense of you know did your did you just come from a hard day or whatever yeah. where are you now exactly. and then when you walk onto the stage what do you have to do uh-huh. how important is it and and truly do it because when you do invest yourself in the doing this, your brain takes a vacation and it leaves you free, you know, just to, to access whatever is going on. Well, that's
2: exactly what I'm talking about. The only thing that I, the only difference in the process is that in order to make things more expedient or whatever, and because you're the director and you also have a vision of what you want the whole thing to be rather than sitting around and saying, okay, so what is the action you think you want to do? You, just you say, yeah. this is the action that I see. Does that make sense to you? Do you feel that is right for you? Now work it out the way you want to do it. But this is what I see. I think that you come into the room, and this is exactly. Where are you coming from? You're coming in, you feel this way. That's the. Why are you even walking into this room? Why didn't you walk in can't say well the uh, the playwright wrote it so that there's only one set so this is my only choice to come into this room well you have to have a better reason than that <laughs> why are you coming into this room at this time right now know why you're here and then okay this is what I see as why you're here and what you're doing and you know take it from there and I, I think that does release um, it releases everything else that you need to do the scene especially if you know the situation and you know the character and um the rest of it just can come but i think what gets in people's way is they're not quite sure what, what should i do that should I, should I take that cigarette should i you know what what am i doing and then you get all you know it blocks you it really does
0: you know uh, that's that's really fascinating. Um, I, I've heard like some actors when they first start out, start out, they're like, "What do I do with my hands?" or, yeah. or, <laughs> uh, or sometimes I've seen directors just just say, you know, just grab a prop and say, "Here, you know, here's a prop for you," and it uh-huh. changes the performance right away. I mean, just little yeah. things like that.
1: It also grounds you in the physical universe because sometimes you're so freaked out and your mind is off, and you're thinking about all these things, and you're overthinking it so much that if you're actually There's a tactile physical thing that you're dealing with. It forces you to actually be a human being and not some sort of a big brain.
2: Well, you can actually tell an actor here I think sit on the chair this way, and immediately everything is unlocked. You just don't sit that way, sit this way. Oh, 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 you know, because you do feel differently depending on how you sit, you know. Um, so yeah I think I like to work through a kind of physical the physical reality unlocking uh, rather than talking forever about what's going on in your head
0: well that was a fantastic film bite that you just gave us um, we've, we've reached the end of the show or we have to wrap it up you have to get back to work <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking this time with us um, This is the film bite section. If anybody has a film bite they want to say, I mean, that definitely qualifies as one. Um, I'm going to say, just from listening to Robert, um, if you're out there and you're, you know, you're trying to start in the movie business and you're young and and, um, look at some of the experiences that are out there around the country and in different countries, theatrical experiences, workshop experiences. Robert had talked about his... um, the time that he spent at the Williamstown Theater Festival and the time he spent at the O'Neill Film Fe- or, I'm sorry, um, Theater. Theater Festival, or Theater, Conference.
2: what is that called, called Theater the, Conference. Playwrights Conference. the Playwrights Conference.
0: Yeah, there are all kinds of great conferences and workshops that you can check out. Um, Sundance has one as well. Um, and you meet people. Like he said, he was there. Um, there were all these great playwrights at Wendy Wasserstein, Ted Talley, all these guys that were just people that were just coming about he met them in that kind of germination and that, you know, he probably had a lot of working relationships with these people as, you know, in his life. So that's my film bite.
1: Well, and what I want to say, what I found most fascinating about talking to Robert is how when you go about doing what you love to do and you don't put a lot of of thought necessarily or strategy or effort into I've got to be directing a play at the public theater right now um and you just do what you do and you do it well and you enjoy what you're doing these things come to you because you're basically you're draw you're you're a magnet for other people to come and want to work with you because you're just freely doing the best work that you are capable of and so we can on the one hand look at Robert's career and say boy look at the luck and look at you know what a sort of charmed existence but by the same token everything he did and the way that he did it made those things possible to come into his sphere so he could then accept them and do them
2: That's a good way to look at it (laughs) I think that's true I never started out to do anything except to be good at whatever it was that I was doing. And it's still the way I feel. I've, I still, all I ever want is to do good work and to tell a story. That's how I see myself. I, I, people say you're a filmmaker, you're an artist. You're, I see myself as a storyteller. To me, it's all about the story and communicating the story. Um, what's the best way to tell the story, to make other people feel what you feel about the story. All right. So
0: Thank you
1: so much. You. It really was a pleasure.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: All right, and uh, if you have any questions for us, email us at joel at fatfreefilm.com and we'll see you next time.